today, Lynette and I decided we wanted to come into the room together, into the studio here, and talk about kind of where we've been in the past to how did we get to where we are today, and then what do we really see for the future. And we wanted to do this in a different format, kind of like the format we do in a Q&A, but a little bit more conversational um, and just kind of kind of present you the timeline of events um, in a way that we hope really translates to you in a way that you, know, you guys are always asking, Can you? what's the one video that my friends and family should watch that really explains to us, uh, explains to them what's going on here? But we wanted to do it in a more conversational dialogue type of format without all the charts and the, you know, graphs and all those things and kind of try to keep it simple. So... We're just going to dive in. This is something we've never done before, but we wanted to try to do it for you guys because you've been asking for this kind of content. So, Lynette. Yes. Okay, so where do you feel like this all started? Like, what was kind of the, in your opinion, like the starting point? Well, I think uh, governments had a problem when we were on the gold standard because if they wanted to tax you more, you knew about it. And if you knew about it, then you might give them pushback. And they don't want pushback. They want you to volunteer. So they needed a system that they could tax you without having to go through legislation, making it visible for you. And when you're on a gold standard, it kind of supports the currency and doesn't allow you to inflate its value away. So the whole thing started from that premise, plus companies, corporations, wanted to pay you less money. But if you were used to getting a certain amount, you're not going to be willing to take less. However, if they could make what they give you spend less and put more money in their pockets, that's what they wanted to do. So private corporations got together with the government and they came up with this fiat money idea. And they installed the FRED uh, or the Federal Reserve in 1913. And that really started the transition. So we were still on a gold standard, but they shifted from a 20th of an ounce to, of a, to a dollar to 20th of an ounce to $2.40, which enabled them to inflate the monetary, the currency that was in circulation by almost two and a half times. Okay, so the Federal Reserve was instituted in 1913. Mm-hmm. What year did the, the transition from, you said a 20th of an ounce to a dollar to... Uh, a twentieth of an ounce to two dollars and forty cents. And forty cents. What year was that about? That was nineteen thirteen. Oh, and that was you, okay. That was. And so, if you look at the purchasing power graph, uh, you can see on the kickoff that the purchasing power dropped roughly fifty percent. Yes, because they printed two point four dollars, right, as compared to the gold that they held. So that would have been noticeable, but at the same time. They were also, for the first time, enabling the normal population to get credit and to get, you know, unbacked credit. So it kind of offset it. And since there was so much more money sloshing around, have you heard of the Roaring Twenties? So part of the way that governments and central banks use the transition is they allow the general public to thrive for a certain period of time so that they're not really paying attention, right? Because, hey, what are you going to complain? Now, all of a sudden, you have a lot more, at least nominally, you have a lot more money than you did. Right. So then in 1933, when the government 
basically confiscated the gold, right? Because they needed to be able to print even more money. And then they changed that ratio. Well, let, let's kind of back up to move forward for a second. Sure. Because when we were on the gold standard, if, if you as an individual did not like what your government was doing, you would simply bring money, cash, dollars, Federal Reserve notes, into the banks and convert it to the gold, pull the gold out of the system, which then, you know, when you're on a gold standard, it's fiscal responsibility. Governments have to be responsible. But uh, so you would walk in with a dollar bill and walk out with the gold, and that created further restrictions for the government. Right. They couldn't print as much money. Correct. So then enter 1933. Uh, they had to Roosevelt eliminate that confiscates the gold, gives mm -hmm. you the $20.67 an ounce, but then shortly thereafter raises the price of the gold to dollar ratio for, for $35 to one, which then reduced the purchasing power of the currency 42% overnight. Mm -hmm. So people lost 42% after that confiscation, right? So so now I'm, I'm just going to fast forward all the way to 1971. Okay, but you could say that's an overnight revaluation, couldn't you? 100% it is, right? So it is in a historic what, in, norm in, a, in the U.S. It's a reset. Yes, it is. Yes. Absolutely, 100%. So then in 1971, Nixon takes the, us off the gold standard completely under mm -hmm. the guise of a bunch of different things. But he then it, that enables the central banks to print money at will, unchecked, right? And I know you've said it many times, that enabled the financial products that we see today. Oh, so 100%. So why, why don't you tell them about derivatives and where, where you feel like your concern is with derivatives? Okay, so really what was happening in the 60s, uh, the, the late 50s and the 60s with the Vietnam War, was that the U.S. was exporting inflation because they were inflating the currency that they were, had promised to keep steady at $35 an ounce to gold. And so there was actually a run on the dollar from foreign governments, and they were turning in dollars and pulling the gold out of the system. That's really why Nixon, they say it so nicely, closed the gold window. But what he did was disallow, like they did for individuals in 33 and 71, he then disallowed other governments from sending in their dollars and pulling it out of our system to create restrictions. And then when he closed the gold window, he handed over full control of inflation to private central banks. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened in 71, even with the promise, well, if you buy, if you buy American-made products, you're not going to feel the inflation, right? Yeah. Well, if you do that, except then we started on the path to globalization and we shipped all of the American jobs or a lot of the American jobs, particularly in manufacturing, we shipped that away. And then what the central banks were doing after that, what, what the currency was backed by the full faith and credit. No more gold. That goes away. It's just faith and credit. So if you think about those terms, as long as we trust you and we have faith, we'll keep loaning you money. So that was then the system based upon debt, which is why we have the debt levels that we have today, because that's how new money is created in the system. But yes, that absolutely goes to, they call it financial innovation, where they can create products out of nothing because it's easy to fund those products with the funny money, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of works like a spoke. If you have the central bank that creates the money in the, in the center, then you have the corporations 
that are closest to the central bank, so other banks, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, all those guys, will they get the money, the new money cheapest when it has most value? And then after that, that next wider circle is the government because we, the taxpayers, have to pay that debt. But if Wall Street gets that money when it is the cheapest and it has the most value, it's pretty easy then to turn that into all sorts of leverage products because that leverage creates more debt and that more debt creates more money. So that's how they were able to grow that system and also pick winners and losers. Right. So then, so then derivatives are invented. Essentially, we see derivatives explode out of control and then 2008 happens. Right. So let's, let's just fast forward. Let's just go all the way to 2008. So now, so now this whole money printing has gotten out of control and they've, it's allowed this financialization mm -hmm, of products and now we have derivatives and they've gotten huge. And now 2008 happens. Right. Okay. Uh, And what happened in 2008 was very much like what happened in 1929. So there was lots and lots and lots of, of loose credit right? They wanted people to borrow and spend to quote unquote stimulate the economy. And they were using, I mean, we went to a period where we were going from bubble to bubble. So the central banks created that housing bubble, just like they just now created another one between, Mm -hmm. you know, 2008. And all of these derivative products with all of that innovation, well, what they would do is they take a mortgage and they would pull from the mortgage your promise to pay that mortgage. And that went into, let's say you had really crappy credit. And it's important to understand all of this innovation, right? So the mortgage is sitting over here with the bank, but the promise to pay is pulled out of it. Now, if you somehow with their formulas, if you have crappy credit, you know, you'd be at maybe a a B or a triple C or something like that below investment grade quality. But somehow, according to their formulas, 20% of the people with that really crappy credit were likely to default. However, when you take a whole bunch of people with really crappy credit and you put them together, somehow magically it goes from below investment grade junk quality to triple A rated. Well, you can do a lot of things with AAA rated credit. It can go into retirement plans. It can go, that, that's really the key. It can go to, into insurance products, et cetera. But the underlying theory and the underlying formulas were wrong and they will be wrong again. And so when the credit was cut off and these, those pools of, of promises were called CDOs, collateralized debt, obligation. That was the promise to pay. So we know what happened in 2008. A lot of people stopped paying, didn't they? Mm-hmm. All right. So that was the, the <coughs> second speculative derivative implosion because derivatives have been around right. for a while, but they weren't speculative. They were for end user. And I've talked about that quite a bit over time. Uh, and so Instead of the CDOs, the Bank for International Settlements is super concerned about CLOs, which are collateralized loan obligations that have taken the place of those CDOs. Right. So what you're saying is 
that whole blow up in 2008, they didn't really solve it. <laughs> they they just nothing. renamed it, papered over it, and let's move on. Right. And instead of uh, a whole bunch of individuals with crappy credit, now we've got these CLOs that are a whole bunch of corporations with crappy credit. And we're going into a recession, which means not only, you know, I mean, we've heard of zombie corporations, which are corporations that for at least three years do not have enough income to pay the interest on their debt, let alone any of the principal. But the banks have not wanted to show that as bad loans on their books because it would hurt their stock valuations. So instead, they've just been loaning them money so that they pay at least enough of the interest. So they're compounding they're compounding interest. And the problem is, is that now interest rates are rising. Well, so before we get to that. Okay. So I think it's important to um, explain because there's a couple of things that we already know d derivatives are bigger than they were in 2008. Huge. Right? And yes. They're, yes. they're definitely a major threat. One of the one, oh, of the, one of the Jenga, maybe multiple pieces of the Jenga thing that could cause the oh, toppling yeah. of the system, right? Most definitely. So, but I think what's important is for people to understand uh, a little bit about Reg D and mm. the bail-ins, mm -hmm. and then a little bit about Seed & Co. and the Yale Law study that you found that really shows how we don't really own anything. Right. Because I think that is an eye-opener as far as, okay, yeah, cool, there's been all this money printing and there's been these derivatives, but I think if people see that, what that is, it really, to me, it drove home like, Holy cow! This is this is really dangerous. Oh yeah. So tell them a little bit. So well, tell them about the Yale with, Law Study. Well, okay. You want me to start with Reg D or the Yale Law Study? Either, either one. Either, either one. one. Yeah. Because because uh, the Reg D really started in earnest to the part that impacts the individuals uh, in 1995, and the banks needed more money to fund those speculative derivatives, right? Mm -hmm. So what the law that was passed enabled when you make a deposit for them to sweep those funds to sub-accounts in the bank's name so that they can go out and use your equity and do whatever they want with it, more derivatives, et cetera. Right. Because we do, we, it, it should be really clear to everybody that central banks and governments pick winners and losers. And banks are too big to fail, but individuals are just about the right size to fail. So they put that in place, and that, that enabled banks to boost their earnings through trading, which today is like one of the main ways that they get their, their money, that they, they produce their earnings. So that was Reg D. At the same time, I mean, really, this started back in the early 70s where they started to transfer the risk from corporations to individuals. So I've got to kind of back up here to move forward a little bit. Because prior to 1971, most people worked for corporations like you went in there. And I remember you just plan on working at the same place for all these years because these corporations were promising you uh, a set amount when you retired if you stayed with them right. for all that period of time, which means that the corporations took market risk. But in the 70s, that's when they created the IRA. So now they started to transfer the risk from the corporations onto the individuals uh, because now instead of a, instead of a defined uh, benefit, it is a defined contribution. So you put so much in your account every week or every month, however you get paid, right? And then 
institutional investors invest that money. So that's important to know because at the same time that they were setting up that kind of thing, they were setting up uh, DTC and Seed and Company. And that's what you're referring to in the Yale Law Study and this incredible flow chart showing who the real legal owner is. Remember, they finalized and really started to formalize perception management in the 80s under President Reagan when he brought over Rupert Murdoch um, because, hey, they know how to market this stuff. So very quietly, I was a stockbroker in the 80s. And I remember how much they were pushing to get assets in house, assets in house, because prior to that, people held their stock certificates, their bond certificates. So those were out of the system, right? But if they're out of the system, then the banks can't use it for their benefit. So all of this uh, transition and the transition of risk and the transition of who actually owns this wealth really started after the banks took over. Okay. Now, if you look at that flow chart, you have uh, Seed & Company, DTC. Now, who owns them? All of the banks, the, the uh, financial institutions, whether it's a commercial bank or an investment bank, and then all of their subsidiaries below them, right? But it's the big banks and all the financial institutions that own Seed & Company and DTC. Now, where do you fall on that flow chart? All the way down at the bottom. So Seed & Company, and it's just a corporation that legally holds the legal title to everything that is titled uh, street names. So if you have a brokerage account, whether it's at a bank or a, bro or a broker's uh, investment broker or even a variable annuity and an insurance company, et cetera, Find out how that account is held. My bet is it will be held in street name. And so what you've agreed to without realizing it is that you've agreed to just be the beneficial owner. Seed and Company is the legal owner. If you go to a court of law, who are they going to care about? The beneficial owner down at the bottom or the legal owner at the top? It's the legal owner. That's why when you look at what happened in 2008, nobody went to jail. Because even though what they did was disgusting and evil and horrible and ruined a lot of people, it was all legal. Right. Okay. So, so Seed & Company owns all, all the assets. Legally. Right? Legally. Mm -hmm. Now, and you talked about Reg D, about sweeping. You, anytime you mm -hmm. make deposits into the bank, they can sweep that money into sub-accounts in their name. But... So the bail-ins, I think, is something that's super scary to me and important. Oh, yes. So I know Reg D then enabled right, bail-ins to uh, be able to happen, right? Yes, because it's called deposit reclassification because you don't own those deposits. You may perceive that that's your money, but it's not. As soon as you make that deposit and they sweep it below, you are a lender to that bank. You don't own that money at all. And so, I mean, look, these guys know what they're doing. And I don't mean necessarily in a good way, but also they know that we're driving off of a cliff. So what they needed to do, and there was never any doubt, you know, you and I, 
went through 2008 together. And 100% of the time, when 2008 happened, I said, that's it. The system just died. So they printed all of this money to cover up all of the garbage, but they did not change behavior. They just changed how they accounted for that behavior. But they came out with all these rules in the Dodd-Frank and they never even actually implemented all of them. But they did implement the bail-in laws because people were really taxpayers, were really not happy that all those taxpayers went, all those tax dollars went to the banks. Right. So now they created bail in. They tested it in Cyprus. Why'd they pick Cyprus? Because Cyprus is way over there and it's itty bitty. So anybody else in an advanced economy is going to go, well, that's Cyprus. That, that couldn't possibly happen here. But while since 2010, since they uh, they legalized Dodd-Frank, they have dismantled almost all of the rules and regulations, except for the bail-in, which I find really interesting. And what that means is, if your bank is failing, they get to bail in, take your money, that, well, it's not really your money, but the money that you've loaned the bank that you perceive as your money, they get to just take it and leave you stock in the failing institution. Sounds fair to me. Guess who determines how much that stock is worth? The bank that's failing. Yeah. So between <laughs> between the seed and company and the bail-ins, I think those are two really, really scary points. Yes. Um, so now we know that the money printing now has gotten out of control, right? We're, oh, yeah. We've gone, I mean, what, not was $9 trillion in 2008. Now we're at over $32 trillion, something like that. So I know that we talk a lot about on this channel about hyperinflation and reset. So yes. just yes. briefly touch on um, hyperinflation and reset and what that looks like. Okay. Well, you know, look, here, here is how inflation helps everybody, right? It, it reduces the value of the currency and that is supposed to push up your salary so that it makes the debt that you're servicing seem cheap. So anybody that bought their first house and thought, oh my God, this payment is so high. But over time, you're, it, at least it looks like you're making more money and it mm -hmm. makes that debt payment easier. The problem is, is that officially there is roughly three cents left in terms of purchasing power out of the original dollars worth of purchasing power. The Fed has managed to inflate all of that value away. So we're at the end. Plus the tool that the Fed, the key tool that the Federal Reserve has to regulate the rate and speed of inflation are interest rates. But we've been anchored at zero since 2008. Right. And even when they attempted to raise it the last time, 2016 to 2019, it was a big fat fail. Every single currency that has tried to lift off of that zero bound has been forced to do a pivot, which the markets love the pivot. But what this next pivot is likely to do. OK, so we were talking about the debt, but on the books of the Federal Reserve, when we went into 2008, they went to 800 billion, which was outrageous at the time. 
They got as high as a little bit, I think it was uh, close to $9 trillion from the $800 billion. So it's even worse when you add it on to the, to the federal debt. Mm. So they're trying to reduce their balance sheet. They're trying to increase the interest rates so that when we go into the next recession that, by the way, globally, everybody's pushing right. into, right? Yeah. They can turn around and drop those interest rates again. But from 1982 to 1922, right, um, up until that point, well, up until 2008, the average level that they have dropped the interest rate to to actually stimulate borrowing spending was eight and a half to eight, I mean, five and a half to five and three quarters percent. So if that happens right now, that's why everybody's calling for a pivot and the markets are kind of going, oh, the Fed's going to pivot. And the Fed keeps telling them, no, I'm, we're not going to pivot. And that's happening globally. So there really is a battle royale that has just gone started between the markets and the central banks. And are the central banks going to prove to the markets that they're in control by continually raising the rates past a point that the markets can tolerate. That's why you might hear people talking about, you know, uh, the Fed making a mistake, a policy error. Mm -hmm. You know, either way, if they keep raising the rates, it's a policy error. If they turn around and pivot, it's a policy error because they have no more room on the interest rate front and how much more room do they have on their balance sheet? I mean, they can still do they can still do more as long as we have confidence right. in them. But there's no purchasing power left. We have to go to negative rates. They have to attack. I remember when they first went to negative rates, and I said, "Oh, here we go. They're attacking principle." Remember that conversation mm -hmm. all those years ago? So they have to attack. If they have no more purchasing power, they have to attack principle. So that's where they're taking us into a place where we can't where we perceive that we can't escape it. We can escape it. Right. That's what gold and silver are about, physical, outside of the system in your possession. So eventually what ends up happening is, in my, from, you know, listening to you all these years, is that they continue down the path of printing money, printing money, printing money. It's the only right? thing they have, yeah. And eventually growing debt, growing debt, too growing many debt. dollars chasing too few goods, and that accelerates, the velocity speeds up, and we go into a hyperinflationary environment where, you know, a loaf of bread that costs $4 today now costs $1,000, then a $1 million, then $10 million, right? But Eric, that can't happen here. Isn't that what a lot of people out there watching this are saying to themselves? For sure. But it's only a matter of how much time before the, all the money printing comes home to roost. Exactly. Right? And we can get into all those details, but trying to, in, in well, trying to keep this video somewhat short, right? So then, yeah. so then we get to the point where we say, where they go and say, okay, we need to, we need to reset the currency, right? And there's, see, there's a couple of different, there's two different kinds of resets, right? That you've talked about. One where it's like a revaluation, oh, a revaluation, right. a revaluation, and then a complete reset, right? Right. Well, see, all of this hinges on confidence because this is totally a con game, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what makes, but remember last summer when the Fed and not just the Fed, but the ECB and a number of other central banks actually kind of 
you know, shocked the markets and destroyed in many ways the confidence that the markets had in the Fed's forward guidance and central banks forward guidance because the Fed was saying this is what we're going to do and then the markets could get into position, Wall Street could get into position to benefit from it. But all of a sudden they said this is what we're going to do and then at the last second they did something different. It's that loss of confidence from the public, which is what happens with rapid inflation, that puts the confidence, that puts the Fed in jeopardy and that's when the hyperinflation really starts. Because that's what creates the velocity of money, right? Exactly. The loss of confidence. Exactly. And that's why they are, are always checking to see what are those inflation expectations? What is consumer confidence? Because it's, it's what the public thinks. There's way more of us. Right. So we go into a hyperinflation, right? Yes. I mean, that's the obvious future problem that we have, right. hyperinflation. And then explain like the the overnight revaluations the resets that occur you want to explain that real quick briefly? yes because what happens then as as the public loses confidence and the currency starts losing value rapidly right which is why everybody's raising rates right now because they're trying to prevent that then um ultimately people stop using the dollars right if they have a choice they stop using the dollars they'll use anything else with them because nobody really wants them. So the only entities that take them are some kind of government or quasi-governmental agencies that are actually forced, continue to force to take the dollars. And like you said, the loaf of bread can go to a thousand dollars or, you know, in Zimbabwe, it went to 80,000 Zimbabwe dollars. So that first overnight revaluation, what they'll do is, well, they will lop off a bunch of zeros. And I can't tell you exactly what that ratio is going to be, but the most normal one, the typical one, is a thousand to one. So if you have a thousand bucks in the bank and you go to sleep overnight when you wake up in the morning, there's one. Right. And then that happens again. And then Correct. typically it happens again. Because they don't change behavior. Right. So what you know, you and I have talked about in the past is a one way that they hope to, right, control all of this and try to get out in front of all this. But we know that it's a major threat to our way of living oh, yeah. is the central bank digital currencies. Oh, yes, because right? that gives them full control. Right. I mean, when, when we were on the gold standard, you just have to kind of look at this. When we were on the gold standard, the public had control because they didn't like what the government was doing. They pulled the gold out of the system. Then we went on the paper standard, so the Federal Reserve notes, which is a debt instrument that neither charges interest nor pays you interest. So that means that it's got a zero interest rate. So that's a problem for governments because it, it inhibits their ability to go below zero. And, and they ran that test for quite some time, since 2009 up until just recently, mm -hmm. right? And it really, it, it definitely inhibited them. So now, with the advent of technology, they want to go to that CBDC, which is programmable money. At least when we're on the paper standard, if you hold the bills in your wallet, they're invisible and you cannot protect your purchasing power, but you can protect your principal. Well, they got to take that principal. So they need you, all your wealth, in a system that makes it easy for them to have their finger, and they've talked about this, constantly tweaking. 
because mm -hmm. right now when they issue policy, it takes roughly 18 months to go through the system for them to know, is this working or not? Well, once we're once they're in full control, and they're going to sell it like there won't be any inflation once we control the CBDCs. No, it'll be deflation because they're going to charge negative rates to force you to do what they want you to do. And that's the thing, programmable money. So you have, it's completely in their control instantly, and you have no privacy because they know everything that comes in. They know everything that goes out. They know where you're spending it. They can dictate. I mean, you can look in Ch at China and see full surveillance economy and hey, you're crossing the street and you're jaywalking. By the time you get to the other side, that money's pulled out. Yeah, that's a fine. Well, and they and programmable means they can tell you how much of your salary that you're earning you can spend on your mortgage, how much you can spend on your car, how much you can spend on your food. Oh, and if you didn't uh, do what they wanted you to do, they could just freeze your bank account and make it so you can't spend your money. So CBDCs are a major threat, and it's something that they're going to spin as awesome. But yeah. we should all be very concerned about central bank digital currencies having total control. Right. So, and Eric, that's why I own gold because I can always convert it into wherever I am in the world, I can convert it into the local currency. Well, and it's 100% no vote. It's, exactly. It's you vote with your no purse. Vote, you vote no with your purse. No vote to central bank digital currencies. Yes, it is. To inflation, hyperinflation. It's a no vote to everything that they're up to. Exactly. Right? And, and one of the reasons why we believe so much in what we do here at ITM Trading, which is create strategies with gold and silver to help people survive and thrive what we think is, what we know is coming. Right. Um, I mean, this is right. This right? is just a repetition of history. But even the BIS and the IMF admit that gold is the only, on the money flower, the only asset that runs yes. no counterparty risk and is not controlled. You say it better than it's, I do. Right. Uh, on the, the Bank for International Settlements creates this money flower. And gold and silver as commodity money are, are the only money that is, that is universally accepted but is outside of the purview of the central banks. Everything else is inside the purview of the central banks. And I love the fact that you said it's a no vote because people don't realize that they vote with our purses, right? We, we do. How do you spend your money? So if you keep your money in the stock and the bond market, that's a vote. And it's in the system. And it's in the system. Gold it and makes silver. It, that's also a vote. And it's, and it's outside, outside of the, the system. system. And it is decentralized. And here's the other thing that nobody ever talks about, except for me, I think. I'm the only one that I ever hear say this. And that is that the reason why gold and silver never have gone to zero is because it has the broadest base of use throughout the global economy. It doesn't require a government to say, this is money, this is this, like the fiat money does, the government-based money, full faith and credit. It, is, it has been globally accepted as money for 6,000 years, and it has the broadest base of buyer. So hopefully that gives you an insight into where we, where we came from in the, in the 1913 forward, and it tells you why we ended up getting into a financialization of the money products, oh, yeah. where the problems the are, are the what the important. central banks feel the solutions are, and what the threats of hyperinflation and a reset look like, and also why we do what we do here at ITM Trading. So hopefully that helped. 
uh, like, subscribe, comment below. Tell us what you think about this video. Did we do a good job? Did we tell you this in a way that you could understand it? We hope we did. And if we didn't, and you let us know, we'll try we'll again. We'll try again. <laughs> we will try again. Because our real goal is to explain this stuff in a way that, that not only can you understand it, but you can actually get some practical experience. How can I put my best interest first and protect my family and myself? So, till next time.